Science has learned much about the local space neighborhood in recent years. NASA and the European Space Agency have sent out probes which have turned the hazy dots seen via Earth telescopes into actual places with sometimes startling geography. Thanks to such space robots, we're learning a lot of new things about planets, their moons, and in some cases rings, as well as asteroids, comets, and some distant objects we're still not quite sure how to classify. The Planetary Society of Pasadena is dedicated to keeping the public informed about the remarkable data streaming in from these missions as it promotes the exploration of our solar system. Founded by the late Carl Sagan and fellow scientists Lou Friedman and Bruce Murray, it's the largest space advocacy group in the world. Joining us now to talk about what we are learning from space is Dr. Bruce Betts, planetary scientist and Sacramento native. Welcome back to Radio Parallax. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. I want to start by noting that we were planning to interview you by phone, but fortuitously you came up from Pasadena to visit the family and thereby improving our audio quality, for which we thank you. That, that's actually why I planned the trip. The, seeing the parents and having my kids visit the grandparents is really secondary. <laughs> it's good to know. Uh, let's do a little background. You went to high school here in Sacramento. I did. Jesuit High School. Go Marauders. All right. <laughs> And then you went off to Stanford, where I understand you racked up BS degrees in physics and math and got an MS degree in applied physics with emphasis on astronomy. Well, some people collect stamps and money, and I collect degrees. So. Well, yes, because you went on to Caltech after that and got a PhD in planetary science with a minor in geology. Yes, indeed you do. That's, that's a lot of times in the classroom, I think. <laughs> it is, and doing research late at night. All right. And then you went off to, to work on planetary instruments for NASA. I did. I had some, uh, some time in between doing some planetary science research, and then I went to NASA headquarters for three years doing a temporary stint managing the up-and-coming instruments for future planetary missions. And you moved on to the Planetary Society down in Southern California. Right. And then I hooked up with Planetary Society. And as you mentioned, Bruce Murray earlier is one of the founders. He was my PhD thesis advisor at Caltech. So that's how the, the whole thing got circled back around. And now I'm director of projects at Planetary Society and trying to involve and excite the public about planetary exploration. Let's get a plug in for exactly that right now. I want to note that four years ago, I attended an event called Planet Fest. Uh, you were one of the MCs for that. The occasion was the landing of the Spirit Probe onto the surface of Mars, and that was very exciting, I think, for everyone in the room to be waiting to see if the probe would get down safely, uh, which it did. Yeah, those, those, event, those live events are always very exciting, and uh, you hope the spacecraft works. In this case, it was spectacular. And in that case, we had uh, about 2,200 people in the room, and it was, so it's kind of the, the sporting event of space exploration. We actually have another coming up May 25th with the next Mars landing, Phoenix, and we'll have another event down in Pasadena, another Planet Fest. Yeah, I think a lot of people probably will from here will want to go down for that. I know I'm going to go down. Good, good. I hope so. And I understand that Ray Bradbury, as, as he often does, is planning to show up for this event. Yes, Ray will be there, and uh, what's interesting this time, Ray Bradbury's come to several, several of our events, but this time we actually get to give something back, since some of his stories will actually be landing on Mars with Phoenix, uh, thanks to one of our projects. Really? Yes, we've got a, a mini DVD made of silica glass that's on the Phoenix Lander, and it has uh, things like a quarter million names that people want to send their names to Mars, but it's also got what we call Visions of Mars that has science fiction and science fact writings from people like Asimov and Bradbury and the, the recently departed Arthur C. Clarke, as well as historical figures like Lowell and Schiaparelli and some art, and we kind of view it as the, the first library on Mars. 
Excellent. So this is kind of reminiscent of the, the gold disc that you that NASA sent out on the Voyager probes many years back. Yes, indeed. Another one of the uh, the, the artifacts going out there. It's a different twist on things. In our, our case, uh, it says, you know, astronauts, take this with you for the, uh, <laughs> the future explorers who want to pick up, in this case, not just a museum piece, but a, an archive of all sorts of Mars thoughts, mostly from the 20th and a little from the 21st century. Well, uh, four years ago, I think you, you, we were all in that room with a collective uh, holding of breath as we were waiting for that spirit to, to land on, on Mars. It's four years later. Spirit is still working. The Opportunity Twin Rover is still working and, uh, and still doing some good science with some maybe some exciting stuff to come this year. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Quite a, quite a mission for a 90-day mission. <laughs> <laughs> it's exceeded its warranty. Yes, it far exceeded its warranty. There's no way you're, uh, you're getting your money back if that one breaks. But the amazing thing is they, they just keep going. They've, uh, they've had them survive for several years. They're still doing good science. Uh, right now, Spirit is kind of hunkering down for the winter. Uh, and it's farther from the equator position. But uh, Opportunity is still exploring and is exploring a big crater about the size of a, a football stadium or bigger, actually, called Victoria. And in there, they're able to see lots and lots of layers of which always excite geologists because it's like reading history books for a, a geologist or a geochemist looking back in history as you look down on the layers. So I imagine that planetary scientists like you are just salivating at the prospect of getting a look at what's in those uh ancient deposits that are they're showing up layers. Yes, definitely. I mean, what the spacecraft have shown already, particularly Opportunity in its landing site, is exactly what, what we were looking for, which was evidence of past water, liquid water, standing water in this case. And we're getting more and more evidence from them of how that, how long it was around and, and what the environment was like, uh, all kind of with an angle towards thinking about life, whether life could have been possible at some point in at least in the past and one of the only three things we know that all life on earth requires is liquid water right now on mars water only exists as a, as a solid or a gas very much like dry ice on earth because of the low pressures but in the past we think mars probably had a higher temperature we know it had a lot of liquid water flowing around whether it was very brief or long term as part of what we're trying to figure out and of course one of the big questions is if there was a lot of water back then and we're sure there was then where is it now Yes, and that one's still a question. You you can, you can find some of it in places like the polar caps, in uh, uh, kind of the equivalent of a permafrost surrounding the polar caps. And in fact, that's what Phoenix will go explore for the first time, as the first mission to the polar regions. It will actually has a digger, and it will uh, scoop down into the soil and should hit water ice where it's landing at seven, 70 degrees north. Uh, but there's, there's still a question of, yeah, we think there is more water and, and where to go. <laughs> and there, and uh, so uh, many, many intriguing questions on Mars. And it continues to be a place that, uh, uh, for better or for worse, I'd say for better, the more we learn, the more questions we come up with and mysteries we expose. It's far more complex than we ever imagined. Well, it is sort of funny to note that we keep seesawing back and forth. Uh, we were hoping that, uh, we, we thought even a couple generations, a generation ago, really, that Mars was having this greening. We thought it was due to plants. Then they went there and thought, no, it's too dry. And, and uh, the jury is still out on whether life could be there. But it is, uh, I think, fair to say, a, a distinct possibility. Yeah, it is. I mean, if life is there now, presumably it's in the, the deep subsurface, probably. But whether life was more uh, available to the surface in the past when you had liquid water present is still a, a big open question and one of the big questions driving Mars science. 
Well, last week there were some headlines. The Europeans took some high-quality photos of one of the moons of Mars, Phobos. I know that's a personal interest of yours. Uh, what, what did they find? Well, <laughs> Phobos is one of those surprising uh, creatures in the solar system. Mars has two small moons, Phobos and Deimos, both very small. Uh, both would easily fit in just one part of Sacramento. And you'd think by now we'd have a really good idea what their origin is. But surprisingly, and I went to an entire conference a, a few months ago about Phobos and Deimos, origin's still uncertain, whether they were captured asteroids, which is the, what most people favor, is that somehow they were captured into Earth orbit after, for being asteroids. But it turns out that's not easy to do if you talk to the dynamical people of, of how do you take something flying by and actually capture it. Uh, or did they form in, in, in place? And so in this case, the spacecraft, of which there are many at Mars, many people don't realize we have so many active spacecraft there, and the Europeans have one, and uh, the U.S. has two orbiters, and we have the Spirit and Opportunity, continue to try to learn more about Phobos and Deimos. And uh, in this case, they were getting uh, some nice... Uh, there's some nice stereo imaging recently, so you can see it more in, in three dimensions and get a better idea of its, its shape and topography and, and cratering. And my understanding is that might not be a bad spot to put to men in the future because it's in some ways easier than landing on the planet Mars itself. Yeah, it's interesting. It's actually much, much easier than landing on Mars. And in fact, other than that pesky time duration of trying to keep people alive for several years going and coming... <laughs> which is huge, uh, it's energetically not that hard a place to get to. And so it, it is a, often suggested as a very logical place that you would put humans, at least in your first uh, attempts at trying to get humans to the Mars system, because a lot of the, the challenge, except for that long duration in space, is in getting to the surface on a planet that has a very thin atmosphere, which turns out to be incredibly difficult. And new photos came in in January from the planet Mercury. I guess there was a messenger probe that went whizzing by. I produced some photos of some areas we hadn't seen before, with some surprises in that too, I gather. Yeah, as always, it seems, anytime we explore somewhere new, we get surprises. This was really exciting for me because, uh, and, and I think for a lot of people, in principle, as much as in the data they got, because Mercury is really the last unexplored planet, depending on how you categorize Pluto, and it, Pluto's got a spacecraft going there. And uh, we saw, a lot of people don't realize that we saw only half of Mercury with the Mariner 10 spacecraft in the 70s because of the way it did things. When it flew by, it only saw one half. And so we, other than some radar observations from Earth, and uh, we haven't known what's on the other side. Now, it's Mercury. It looks a lot like the moon, especially to the untrained eye. But even to the trained eye, it isn't a lot different. But the higher, it, it is different in terms of the big iron core and a bigger body and uh, more processes. So you're still talking a lot of craters and, and some volcanism and some basic processes. But indeed, now they, they still haven't filled the whole gap. That will come this fall. But they did fill about half the gap. So they saw about a quarter of the surface that we had not seen before. And sure enough, they found something really weird that uh, hadn't been seen before. In this case, uh, planetary scientists love to give things names. So it's the spider. <laughs> Not surprisingly, because it looks kind of like a spider. Mm -hmm. And it, it occurs in the Caloris Basin, which first of all is intriguing because it's, uh, it's huge, a multi-thousand mile crater, of which we only saw half of it with Mariner 10. But it's, uh, it's there, and it's got a crater in the middle, and then these cracks coming out from it look kind of like spider legs. And uh, it, although similar, it's actually different looking than... We've never seen that anywhere else in the solar system with its particular characteristics. And exactly how it formed 
is the next game in town. <laughs> Trying to figure it out. Well, speaking of some other games in town, one thing that I think is really fascinating that the Planetary Society has been quite intrigued by is the fact that we've got some probes out there in space, and we think we understand the physics of where they ought to be with great exactitude, and yet we've got a couple probes out at the end of the solar system that are off where they're supposed to be, and when we notice when some of them come by the Earth, they're also not acting the way we expect them to be. So people are asking if there's something wrong with physics as we understand it. Yeah, this is one of those uh, fascinating cases where uh, you keep looking for the the simple explanation, and you know it's still quite possible that it is the simple explanation, but it's not being found yet. The first you referred to is called the Pioneer Anomaly, which is from the Pioneer <laughs> 10 and Pioneer 11 spacecraft launched in the early 1970s, uh, and they are indeed far, far out in our solar system. Pioneer 10 is the second farthest human-made object besides Voyager 1, uh, far, far beyond more than twice the distance of the, the, to Pluto. And what was noticed was a, a while back, many years ago, was that you were seeing these spacecraft were, uh, were slowing just slightly compared to what you'd expect. Now, that's not a huge effect, but it's well within the measurement error of the, uh, uh, the deep space network that tracks these things with giant radio dishes. And so first you look through all the obvious sources. Well, did we, did we, do, did we calculate something wrong in the data? Uh, were the stations not correcting for the atmosphere? Or was it some, something outflowing, outgassing from the spacecraft? And so far, those have not been able to explain it. There's still some question, and there's much more elaborate modeling going on. This is something that we've, we've funded uh, into the thermal modeling, trying to figure out if it's a thermal effect of the spacecrafts radiating more on one side than the other. But even that isn't fitting too well. And so where the Planetary Society stepped in is for a 30-year-old mission, it's sometimes hard to find the data. In this case, the, the data was sitting in old boxes under a stairway in cases, <laughs> uh, literally on people's computers. And so there was a great effort, and NASA was not uh, willing to fund it because they, they tend to be in, into funding the research. So Planetary Society stepped in as one of the things we like to do is fill niches or or save things and step in and get past the bureaucracy. So a lot of this data was saved. And in addition, a whole other set of data that wasn't even expected about the, the characteristics of the spacecraft, the, the temperatures, things will allow us to figure out if there's something else going on. And that whole analysis is going on now trying to figure out, you know, is there something weird with physics? Is there some subtle effect we haven't accounted for? Or is there something mundane on the spacecraft that hasn't been found? And as you mentioned, there's another thing called the Earth flyby anomaly that's just recently been put out publicly, where various spacecraft as they've come by Earth have, have had their velocity change by an amount different than expected, but different amounts for different spacecraft. And so again, that one's people are trying to work. But I mean, it ranges from one European spacecraft two or three U.S. spacecraft, and yet others haven't had it happen. So it's actually kind of nice compared to Pioneer because you've got a lot of different spacecraft, not just two that were made at the same time. And so you can uh, be more confident that something's going on. The suspicion is that these two phenomena are related, but nobody knows yet. Yeah, it's not, not, not clear <laughs> at this point, I'd say, at all. Another thing that the Planetary Society and others have been quite intrigued by is uh, these near-Earth objects. We've been interested in the fact that certain asteroids come closer to us than, than we'd like. Back in 1994, we saw a comet smack into Jupiter with some, some dramatic results. And uh, can we talk a little bit about this, this one in particular, Apophis, I believe it's called, which has a date with planet Earth in 2028, and we hope uh, not a subsequent date eight years later. Yes, Apophis... Uh 
forebodingly named after the Egyptian god of destruction. Uh, Apophis is a roughly three or 400 meter wide asteroid. And as you mentioned, in 20, actually in 2029, it will pass by the Earth uh, closer than our geosynchronous uh, satellites, our communication satellites. Which is a little too close for comfort. Definitely a little too close for comfort. Where the story gets more interesting is, depending on where it passes at that time and is perturbed by the Earth's uh, gravity, it has a possibility of slamming into the Earth in 2036. Now, right now, that possibility is around 1 in 50,000, so... You don't have to lose sleep over it quite yet. Um, but it is it is still not zero. And the fact is, this is only one example of many near-Earth objects out there, some of which we know are there, some of which we don't. And there are a lot of things that uh, the planetary societies work to... Uh, to help with near-Earth object finding. We started a grant program 10 years ago named after the planetary geologist Gene Shoemaker, Gene Shoemaker Neo Grant Awards. And we give those to am mostly amateurs, some professionals, uh, almost literally from all around the world who have these amazing setups. It's hard to call them amateurs. Some of them have one-meter telescopes. Uh, several of them have you know 60-centimeter telescopes with with crazed back ends that can track these amazingly faint objects. And even now when they're more professional surveys finding the objects, it still doesn't help you to find something if you don't know what its orbit is. It doesn't help if you don't know if it has Earth's name on it. So that's a lot of what these this group does is the, the tracking afterwards that allows you to pinpoint it. But Apophis, we all we had a mission design competition actually challenging people to, uh, to figure out, well, how would you figure out the orbit even more precisely? Uh, because you do need to know it very well before 2029 uh, if you want to know if it's going to hit in 2036. So we had various proposals had a, from 20 countries around the world, awarded $50,000 in prizes. Uh, the top prize went to Spaceworks Engineering in Atlanta, uh, and uh, they came up with a very clever way to use spacecraft to do very accurate tracking. And the thing was to use this as an example. Apophis is just a nice example, whether it's one in 50,000 or not, that there are things out there. And the, the probability of any given day that you're going to have an impact and it's going to ruin your day is really, really low. So that's why we're not losing sleep. On the other hand, the thing I like to point out is it's the only natural disaster we have the possibility of preventing. We could do that with enough warning. We could move the asteroid so it doesn't hit. So it's kind of almost irresponsible not to spend some effort trying to avoid it. Well, I do hope that if we do decide it has our name on it, we can go out and give it a little nudge. Me too. <laughs> and that's another thing we're looking at. <laughs> well, the Society has a great radio program I think we should mention, Planetary Radio, hosted by Matt Kaplan. I'm sure some listeners will want to check it out, and I believe on your website people can find a list of stations that, that carry it. Yes, they can. Planetary.org and planetary.org slash radio will give you uh, the latest show that can be downloaded by podcast, or you can find out local stations. Final question. Where do you come down on the Pluto planet or no planet controversy? Officially, the Planetary Society takes no position on the <laughs> Pluto a planet or not a planet. We purely take a position that Pluto is awfully interesting, so whether you call it that or if you call it Bob, it's still a great place to explore and learn from. And we're getting there, what, 2015? We're headed out there? 2015. Save the date. Our guest has been Sacramento native Dr. Bruce Betts. He's director of projects at Pasadena's Planetary Society and is the science editor for their monthly magazine, Planetary Report. Bruce, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. And, and good luck with Planet Fest on May 25th. I know that some of our listeners are no doubt going to want to make that trip down there for that. Thanks. It's going to be fun and exciting. Indeed. 